ahead and have a seat, guys. That was great. Thank you, singers. Give it up for these singers, guys. They're here like every Sunday. What would we do without these singers? I know. All right. Uh, hey, guys, guess what? This is the last uh, sermon in this series. We are going to be done with the villain series. But the good news is that next week, Tom Wilson will be here, and he's going to do a Christmas message for us. Tom and Lori are coming to visit family. And then the week after that, we have another, probably a Christmas message, because it'll be the day after Christmas. But there's a brother from London who leads the campus ministry in London, and his name is Mark, and his whole family lives here in Grand Rapids. Who knew that? But he, they just moved here, and he's like, hey, I'm coming to Grand Rapids for like three weeks. And I said, this is awesome. So we're going to get to see him uh, for, the, I think, the next three Sundays, and he's going to preach the day after Christmas. So... Uh, you won't hear me preach again until 2022, and hopefully uh, we can set up the next year for success uh, spiritually. But we're going to jump into our lesson. So we've been doing the villain, and the villain are the bad guys throughout the Bible. And there's one bad guy. You're probably like, you haven't done the devil, and I'm not going to do the devil uh, because that's a whole other talk for another time, but I'm going to talk about what I think is probably the worst villain in the whole Bible, and that is us, the self. Today's lesson is about the self, and maybe you've never even thought about it that way. You've thought about yourself, but you've never thought about the self, and what is that? Well, we are going to look at a bunch of scriptures, and we are going to um, look at some quotes by one of my favorite Christian authors, and Jen's favorite Christian author of all time, uh, A.W. Tozer. I would strongly, if you've never read any Tozer, I would strongly recommend it. We're going to have some quotes throughout the lesson. But, um, you know, he died in 1963. And he had a, a very rich and full life, even though his last grade of actual formal schooling was the sixth grade. And after that, everything he did was self-taught. But he was a voracious learner, and he read everything he could get his hands on about church history, about the early fathers, and obviously the Bible itself. And so I'm going to sprinkle in some Tozer quotes throughout the this, this story. There's a great story of how he had a job one time where he was working at like a tire like manufacturing plant or he was like repurposing t like rubber tires. And so he actually would, work, he had his machine he was working at and he would literally like he built a, a book stand where he would prop up books and read them while he was operating his machine. And so, I love this guy, and he's, he's not, it's not like simple writing. There's some heady stuff when you start reading Tozer, but some of his uh, perspectives are so amazing, and so we're going to get into to Tozer. So if you think about, here's, here are the, the, the bad guys that we have looked at. 
These are the bad guys we've looked at up until now in these little icons. And the crazy thing is, like, you can think of bad guys like this. Like, there's a bad person or bad people. Here's a group of bad guys. And yet, behind all of these, kind of like running in the background of all of these things. If you ever open up on your computer, the, the, the background applications, <laughs> the self, the self.exe is running in the background of everybody's, like, computer. And so behind all of these guys is this hidden villain, which is the self. None of these people were selfless. And I don't think very few of them were humble. They were filled with this idea of, I am the most important thing in my life. And all of these guys are now dead, and they can't harm any one of us anymore. And yet... uh, the most evil person in the world, like if you were to think, what's the most evil person in the world? He can't hurt you. Any, like he can do very little to actually affect you and he can do very little, almost nothing, to affect your relationship with God. Throughout history, the most evil people, they're all, they're all gone. The most evil person alive today, he can't really influence your life all that much. And he cannot jeopardize your relationship with God. No one can hurt you spiritually as much as you can hurt yourself. And so we can turn into all these guys. I'm going to run down through uh, the, the series that we've done so far. So we can be like Pharaoh. And we, uh, what was Pharaoh's issues? He was enslaving people. He used power and he controlled people. And we can do that as well. Joseph's brothers, we can become like them when we give in to jealousy and rage. We can become Saul when we do whatever we want to do and give in to insecurity. We can become false prophets when we spiritualize our desires. You remember that one? And when we can project a false future, either the false future of honor or dishonor, like worry. We can become the evil kings when we reject our advisors. And when we use control to get what we want. We can become the Pharisees when we love being religious more than we love people. And we can become Judas when we have greedy schemes ruling in our heart. And so this is why we did this series. We want to analyze how and why these guys are in us. How we are the villain in the Bible, but even like right now. I am the villain. I am the most dangerous threat to my relationship with God. And I want us to to really take that seriously. So here's a scripture from Jesus. Jesus gets called out because his disciples didn't wash their hands and they're not obeying some of the cleanliness rules. And this is what Jesus says in Mark 7. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. Now, I just want to explain this. There were Old Testament cleanliness laws, and God set that up. And he said, if you you obey these, life will go well for you. And he had these rules about staying clean, outwardly clean, physically clean. And yet, 
over time, I kind of developed into, if you break one of these laws, you're hurting your relationship with God. So now defiled meant something else. Defiled didn't necessarily mean dirty. Defiled meant sinful. Defiled meant bad in the eyes of the Lord. And so Jesus is like, guys, 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 guys. You're, you're, you're missing this. You think that by obeying these laws, you will avoid being defiled. But you can, be, you can obey these laws and still be defiled. Because defiled isn't clean or dirty. Defiled is a condition of the heart. I'm going to keep reading because he gets really specific here. After he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked? Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of their body. Jesus literally was describing pooping to his disciples right here. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. But this is where he gets very, he like drills down on the specifics. He went on. What comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within. Out of a person's heart that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. And so what Jesus is saying is like, guys, you're so worried about these external things and how the, you think that they will influence your relationship with God. You need to look inside because your, your most dangerous enemy is you and your heart. And we do this too. It's not the same way. It's not, it's not with cleanliness. It's not Old Testament laws. But we even have this externalization of things. And I've even seen... This is why I'm not going to talk about the devil. Is, is the devil real? Yes. But we sent, tend to sometimes think like, man, even jokes like the devil made me do it or get behind me, Satan, or like over-spiritualization of like, greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And it's like, if, if I can just shake off the devil, then I'll be okay. And Jesus is like, you're still carrying around a whole bunch of evil inside you. And so we, if whenever we're like, oh, if it was just for this, then I'd be good. Like, be careful of saying that. That's the exact same mistake they made back then. If we just obeyed the rules, then we would be good. And he's like, you can still obey all those rules and still be defiled. And so, I need us to really, like, let this settle into our hearts. I am the most dangerous threat to my relationship with God. And if we, if we, if we want to like erase that and put anything else in there, if, if there's anything else that's more a threat to your relationship with God than you, then you're going to focus on that and you're going to be like, yeah, this is the thing. If I could only overcome this, if this were gone, then I'd be okay. You can try to get rid of that thing, but you still are going to have you. Wherever you go, there you are. And so there's guys that have not addressed deep-seated like sin in their heart and they think if I can just if I can just like move get away from these people then I'll be okay or if I can just quit my job and get a new job or if if poverty is the thing that's making me sin if I if I could just get more money or if I could whatever if I had the right internet blockers on my computer then I would be okay 
And no matter what you do, there you are. You still have you to deal with. And so today, uh, we are, that's what we're going to address. So my first point is this, the self-sins. There's lots of sins in the Bible that revolve around the self. But my fear is that we don't really like pay attention to them. You know what I might need? I might need the clicker because I feel like this is going to not do well. So here are some. Can you grab that? It's, on the, it's just sitting on the top. Here are some scriptures. The first three are from Paul. The second two are from Jesus. Thank you, Connor. So it talks about love is not self-seeking. Uh, he's talking about false preachers, false teachers, how they preach with selfish ambition, not sincerely. He encourages the Philippians in their humility, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Jesus says that those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And I think we looked at this a couple weeks ago. Uh, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees, teachers of the law, as being hypocrites because even though they had it all nice on the outside, inside, one of the things that they could not repent of is self-indulgence. And so we read these scriptures and we start to make some conclusions. Like, if you are self-seeking, you can't really call yourself loving because love is not self-seeking. Selfish ambition is vain. And when it's mixed with religion, is not sincere. When you exalt yourself, I talk about this a lot. When you exalt yourself, you are stepping off of team God. <laughs> I want to be on team God, but that is humble people. And when you exalt yourself and you reject humility, you're like, I don't want to be on team God, I want to be on team Ben. I want to be on my team. Because I can be in charge. And, as Jesus was telling the, the Pharisees, when, you, when religious people practice self-indulgence, they become hypocrites. It's just the way to go. Now Tozer had this great quote. To be specific, the self-sins are these. Self-righteousness, self-pity, self-confidence, self-sufficiency, self-admiration, self-love, and a host of others like them. The problem is, we read that and we're like, well, some of those aren't bad. Some of those are good. Isn't self-confidence, self-sufficiency, self-admiration, self-love, aren't those good? There is a a piece of goodness in them, but they can get off the rails pretty quickly. And then he goes on. I love this quote. The grosser manifestations of these self-sins, egotism, exhibitionism, which is attracting attention to oneself, self-promotion, they are strangely tolerated in Christian leaders, even in circles of impeccable orthodoxy. They are so much in evidence as actually for many people to become identified with the gospel. They appear to be a requisite for popularity in some sections of the visible church. Promoting self under the guise of promoting Christ is currently so common as to excite little notice. That is scary. Did I go? Did it go back? No, no, it's not on the page. I'm just reading it. My bad. Thank you, though. I didn't want to put that whole thing up there. And so this is what Jesus says when he rebukes the Pharisees. But then we have to ask ourselves, like, well, what is self-indulgence? Like, what does that look like in my life? 
And then another question would be, would I even recognize it? If I was being self-indulgent, like, like maybe the Pharisees didn't even know it when, when Jesus was like, hey, you are full of, you know, of, you know hypocrisy and self-indulgence. They're like, what are you even talking about? And so we have to ask ourselves that. Like, if we were being self-indulgent, would we even know it? There are varying degrees. And so maybe over on this side, you have like just pure wickedness. Like just, I'm just going to, you know, ingest every form of pleasure I can. And we're like, well, that's definitely being self-indulgent. But it may just be, on this side of the spectrum, it may just be like very simple individualism. Where we reject community, we reject people, and we just indulge in the idea of the self. And so, we need to explore how can we, uh, how can we even recognize self-sins when they are in us. And so my question is, have, have they even been on my radar? Like when I go down the list of the self-sins, am I like, man, I've never even thought about those. Yeah, this is doing all kinds of weird things. If you ever read Art of War by Sun Tzu, he talks about knowing yourself and knowing your enemy. And the problem is, what if they're the same thing? Spiritually, they are. You have to know yourself because you are the enemy. And so, that's where self-awareness comes in. Like, man, I need to know all the ways that I'm like this. Or it's going to take me out. And this is where pride destroys self-awareness. And that's one of the reasons why pride can destroy your relationship with God. Because it blinds you. You're never even aware of your sin. You're just like, I'm fine. Like, that's so prideful. (laughs) But we need to be asking ourselves, are the self-sins even on my radar? Like, how much time do I actually meditate? Where is my... Where is my, um, my self-exaltation? And so you might be like, well, is, is every part of self bad? Not necessarily. And that's what we're going to look at in point number two. There is this thing where we talk about the old self and the new self. Paul talks about this in two different books. And we're going to look at both of those scriptures. This idea of There's who you used to be, and then this new self, and the new identity. There's something to it. There's value there. And we need to, like, be a certain thing and live a certain thing. And we can't just be, we can't just hate ourselves. That's not, that's not going to be useful at all. Okay? But here we go. In Ephesians 4, there's two verses where he talks about this. In Ephesians 4.22, Paul says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life, To put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So even Paul is like, we need to have this like break. You were this, and now you're this. And how do we define what our old self is? Well, it talks about, you know, being ruled by our desires and how like deceitful those desires can be. And so if you find yourself 
being corrupted by deceitful desires, that's an indication I'm acting like what should be the old self. And then what does the new self look like? Well, it starts with this uh, renewing of the attitudes of our minds, and it's trying to be more righteous and holy, not in a, like a, a shape that we can, we can try to act like, but to be more godly. And so we have an old self, we have a new self, if we are in Christ. And then here's the way he talks about it in Colossians. This is a little bit longer. He says, therefore, uh, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways. In the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. And so, is there... Are, are you just supposed to go around saying, like, I'm evil, wicked, and I, I hate myself? No. You're supposed to be trying to be a new self. Uh, but we always have to be aware of what our old self looked at. And I, I, think, I think I've mentioned this before. Jen and I, we were dating for many years before we even became Christians. And then we had another, like, year and a half before we got married. And there was a time where I was... I was trying to figure out, like, did I even want to be, were we even going to work out? Like, even after we became Christians, we were like, we can just go our separate ways. We don't have to keep doing this. Because we were just, we had so much baggage and so much, like, bad things to each other. And something struck me that I'm so grateful for now. And it is that if I were to, like, end it with Jen... And start a new relationship. There's like, it would be so easy to start all over. And here's this new girl who doesn't know anything about my old self. And I could have just, I could just be new Ben. And when I start acting like old Ben, she would never even know. And yet with Jen... Oh, guys, when I start acting like old Ben, her alarm bells go off. And I need that in my life. And so, but that comes along with not only self-awareness, but having people in your life that know your old self. So this is why, you know, like, I, I, was, I was studying the Bible with this guy and he was like, I, I don't want to talk about sin. Why do we have to talk about sin? And I'm like, well, I need, I need you to know what sin is. But if we're really going to do this as a family, like, I need to know what, what old you looks like. And it's not, there's no control or no weirdness. I'm not, I'm not weaponizing this information. I just want to be the best brother I can possibly be. And that means I if I see you acting like your old self, I need, someone needs to tell you, right? And so we need to be not only self-aware, but we need people in our lives that are also aware of what 
the self looks like in us. Okay, so here's the self. Is that coming across? Here's the self. But what we're really talking about, the whole, the whole point too, it's not even necessarily the self. It's not the guy in this picture that I'm worried about. It's the throne. And this is what we're going to talk about for the whole rest of this lesson. It is not bad to be a person and think about yourself and have goals and have priorities. None of those are evil. What makes the self the villain is that he's sitting on a throne. So in our hearts we have this little throne room. And it has a throne in it. And we are perched. I got two quotes from Tozer. And these are long, but I just need us to like chew on these for a while, okay? They're both unbelievably amazing. Here's the first one. From the knowledge of the holy. Because man is born a rebel, he is unaware that he is one. His his constant assertion of self, as far as he thinks of, of it at all, appears to him a perfectly normal thing. He is willing to share himself Sometimes even to sacrifice himself for a desired end, but never to dethrone himself. No matter how far down the scale of his social acceptance he may slide, he is still, in his own eyes, a king on a throne. And no one, not even God, can take that throne from him. Gosh, that is such an amazing quote. And so this is where I need us to start really thinking about our heart, our little throne room and the throne that is in our heart and how even when we are the most like giving, like, you know, we have, we have veterans who have like gone off to war and they're like, I, I will like sacrifice. And even uh, Paul talks about this, like men will like die for a good man. But it's still, as long as it's my choice and I'm still in control and I get to I'm doing this. And so we are so far removed, especially in our modern sensibility. We're so far removed from the idea of royalty that it could very well be destroying our lordship. Because the idea that we get off the throne may never even occur to us. Our whole lives, it may never even occur to us. And so here's another quote. This is from the Radical Cross. In every Christian's heart, there is a cross and a throne. And the Christian is on the throne till he puts himself on the cross. If he refuses the cross, he remains on the throne. Perhaps this is at the bottom of the backsliding and worldliness among gospel believers today. We want to be saved, but we insist that Christ do all the dying. No cross for us, no dethronement, no dying. We remain king within our little kingdom, and we wear our tinsel crown with all the pride of a Caesar, but we doom ourselves to shadows and weakness and spiritual sterility. I'm done. We can go home. Just like, let that sit with you guys. That is amazing. And we want... On Wednesday, if you come over to our house, we're going to do another teaching night. But we're going to talk about this 
selfish salvation. Where we want the benefits of being saved without any of the... What do we have to do? What, do we, what is required of us? And that's what, he, that's what Tozer is talking about here. Like, oh, you are on the throne. Jesus can be on the cross. You die, I'll rule. I'm not going to die. And you're not going to rule. And so that's what I want to talk about. Here's, our, here's three throne rooms, okay? This is you on the throne of your heart with the whole world in front of you. And this is you making decisions. You have everything at your feet. You can make any choice you want. You can consume how, whatever pleasure you want. This is worldliness. You are in charge of your life and you eat it up. And then, at some point, you decide, you know what? I should go to church. I should be a good church-going folk. And so, you kick out the world and you invite Jesus and now Jesus is in your throne room, throne room as, a, as a trusted advisor. And Jesus is there to help you. And Jesus is there to like counsel you. And you'll listen to Jesus. I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying. Jesus can tell me what to do. And whatever he tells me, I'll take it under advisement. And now Jesus is your trusted advisor. He's your guru. He's your sensei. He's your Yoda. He's your whatever. He's the guy that can help you make good decisions. But you are always in control and you never leave your throne and this is religion just pure religiousness and it's way better than worldliness it's way less self-destructive than worldliness everything it looks good this is where you start to look good on the outside and yet there's another layer where you get off of your throne you say i am not going to run my life anymore And now you, in your own throne room, you are like prostrate at the feet of Jesus who is on the throne of your life. And this is lordship. And lordship is different than religiousness. And so here are the three. And maybe you are on your throne and the world is at your feet and you're like, whatever, man, I'm doing whatever I want. And maybe you have decided like, no, that's not good. And maybe even like through, through real experiences, you've realized it's not good if I just gobble up pleasure and everything bad. Like, I know that's not good. And so you kick the world out of your throne room and you invite Jesus in. Jesus, come on in. And yet, there's another level of your relationship with God where he wants you to get off of your throne. Now, when you kick the world out, and bring Jesus in, your goodness, in quotation marks, your goodness goes up. And it's actually somewhat indistinguishable from lordship. When you make Jesus Lord of your life, you're not going to necessarily look gooder than when you are a good religious person. Your goodness is going to go up when you kick out the world. And yet, when you make Jesus Lord of your life, is when your control goes down. And we have some control freaks in in Christianity. Where as soon as it reaches that point where it drops off, our control plummets, we're like, no, 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 no. I would never, I'm never giving up control. I am going to retain my throne. I literally just like coughed and spit all over the iPad here. 
They saw it on the live stream. You all saw it. Guys, I'm going to say something very serious. You can't say that Jesus is Lord and stay on your throne. I'm just going to say that one more time. You can't say that Jesus is Lord and stay on your throne. And so here's one of my favorite scriptures. This is Jesus talking about being a disciple of his. In Luke 14, 31. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he is not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. This is one of the cannots. This is one of the exclusive scriptures about discipleship. This is one of the things where Jesus is like, here's a story, and if this doesn't apply to me, to you, you are not one of my disciples. And so he tells a story about the two kings. and we, Most of us have read the story. We're intimately familiar with this. He tells two kings, a big king and a little king. And you, me, we are the little king. And as scary as it sounds, God is the big king on his way to destroy us. And you're like, what's up? Where's all the loving father stuff? Yep, but this is Jesus, and I'm not going to mince his words. God is the big king who's coming to destroy us. And he says, you need to understand that you're the little king. You need to sit down like, are you going to beat God? No? Good. That's the right answer. Now what's the next step? And the next step is... You need to send off that delegation. You need to ask for terms of peace. Well, what is that? If you had to summarize this whole scripture in one word, that is surrender. You have to surrender, which means my will, done. I I don't get it anymore. It's It's not my will anymore. But that's the problem. That's our throne. That's our that's what Tozer was saying back in the 40s and 50s. Saying we hate surrender. We We're the big king in our own lives. And so the question is, can I surrender? And you might be like, well, I come to church, don't I? (laughs) It's way deeper than that. To some of us, the idea of surrender just equals weakness. It's just stupid. Like, you say the word surrender, and I think weak, pushover, give up, someone else like, bosses me around? You're not wrong. <laughs> to some of us, especially like some of the young people, surrender, when I say surrender, can you surrender your life? They're like, I've got a lot of things I want to do. I've got goals, I've got fun, I've got this purpose that I'm going to set for myself. And sometimes the idea of a purpose, so surrender equals like no more fun, but purpose comes from self-determination to some of us. And so a life of surrender, that just seems aimless. Like, why would I surrender if I don't get to, like, make my way in the world anymore? And so here's what I want to say. As as a minister, like, you know, you guys show up and you sit and you listen to me. And I, I really only have two tools at my disposal. One is the Bible. And the other is, like, testimony. 
And so I've got this ancient text, thousands of years old, and I trust that when I say something from it, you're like, yeah, that means something to me too. But then the other thing is, I just have a bunch of anecdotal stories. And you might listen to my stories and you're like, that's stupid, I don't care about that. But here, here's, here's why I say that. Because I can't prove to you, there's no like chart, there's no data that I can compile so that you, I will prove to you that a life of surrender is better. Like it's just not going to happen. Because from an outside perspective, sometimes a life of surrender looks worse. And we've talked about that. But I know what the Bible says. And I know that I, me, personally, I'm so glad I am not on my throne anymore. That I got off of that throne. Because when I was on the throne, I just, my life was just not not awesome. And some of the most amazingly strong, most wise most fun, most adventurous people I know are men and women who made Jesus Lord of their life. And that's just anecdotal. You might be like, no, I disagree. You you can disagree, but I'm just telling you, from my perspective, surrender does not have to mean that your life is useless and purposeless and boring and horrible. You can actually have a rich and satisfying life with Jesus as Lord and Jesus even says that. That's what he wants to give us. And so, we have reached the end of this series. And I hope that it has shown us a few things. I hope that it has shown us some things in the Bible. Like, man, there are these, these great, amazing stories that are, that are super relatable to me. But I hope that as we go through this, that it shows you something about your heart. And if we have, I'm going to say this very purposefully, if we have a church filled with people on their own throne, we don't have a church. I don't know what you call that, but you cannot call it the kingdom of God. And so my prayer is that you spend time reflecting on these things. You spend time reflecting on your little throne room and where you are in that relationship. What, what other force influences inside your throne room with you? And then what do you need to do moving forward to surrender your life to Jesus? Amen? With that, I have asked Jacob Wilhelm to do our communion this morning. So come on up, Jacob. Jacob.